For those of us who talk a lot for a living, and this means those of us who are both ministers who have to get up in front of people, and those of us who are communications professors who teach public speaking, and those of us who are just naturally gabby, um, we, we find ourselves often with foot and mouth disease, uh, you know, that place where you have a slip of the tongue or you unintentionally say something, you later realize, that's not what I meant, you know. And, uh, or was it what I meant? Was it something Freudian? Uh, one might think, for instance, that the president of the United States would be a job that no one would ever want to leave. Uh, former President Obama uh, once made it seem like he was a prisoner uh, at a fundraiser at Tyler Perry's mansion in Beverly Hills. He unintentionally said the following, quote, we should be reforming our criminal justice system in such a way that we are not incarcerating nonviolent offenders in ways that renders them incapable of getting a job after they leave office. <laughs> and of course he caught himself and laughed and said, oh, that's obviously not what I meant. Uh, but maybe his acquaintanceship with lots of politicians sort of colored the way he would see uh, politicians and all those things. Uh, gaffes are usually unintentional, uh, with the possible exception of baseball Hall of Famer Yogi Berra, who made his reputation as an unintentional botcher of so-called wise sayings. He famously said things like, like this, um, it's deja vu all over again. Or you can reserve a lot, you can observe a lot just by watching. Um, he was asked once what he would do if he found a million dollars. And this is my favorite response of all time. Quote, I'd find the fellow who lost it, and if he was poor, I'd return it. <laughs> so that's my kind of qualification. People say uh, statistically between two and six words per second. As you might imagine, I tend towards the six. My wife tends towards the two. Uh, this affords plenty of room for mistakes. Uh, Dr. Jeff Goodman, who's a professor at Long Island University, says that using the wrong word or name, quote, reveals a secret desire forbidden by society or oneself. And he explains that before the mind goes into sensor mode, the unconscious hidden thoughts can spill out. And in today's passage in John 12, we're going to see the hidden parts of some souls. This past week were the Emmys. And so I'd like to think of today's drama in those terms, that we're going to have uh, a lead actor. His name is Jesus, and we're going to introduce a couple of other characters along the way. Supporting actor and actress. Uh, entering stage left in our drama, of course, today is Judas Iscariot. And you can hear the hissing from a distance in the audience, can't you? Um, he's the most notorious betrayer of all time. Judas's name is now universally synonymous with a person of sinister character. In the same way that in American culture, if somebody is called a Benedict Arnold, they're called a traitor. Whenever I'm feeling obscure because of my name, Charles, it used to be amongst the most common baby names before Prince Charles came along and ruined it all for us. Uh, I think about how many people don't name their kids Judas. There are very few Judases in the world. Uh, no one, in fact, would name their kid Judas. 
Uh, in fact, even Jesus' brother, who was named Judas, by the time he got around and writing his epistle, decided, hey, it's just Jude. Just Jude. No need to call me by my formal name. Uh, the, the New Testament authors actually go out of their way. The Gospel of John in chapter 14 goes out of its way to start keeping people from the stain of Judas Iscariot. In verse 22 of John 14, the apostle writes, Now, Judas, and then in parentheses, not Iscariot. I mean, even in the first century, it was already like, let's make it very clear that we're not talking about the bad guy. Um, the, the thought being that in our context, we're going to see something come out of Judas's mouth that indicates the condition of his heart. We find ourselves in our text in John 12, once again in Bethany, where Jesus had visited multiple times over the years, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In the last encounter he had, he, he went there, brought Lazarus back from the dead, and then the cultural pressure got fairly intense. The religious leaders were going to, according to Jesus' timetable, prematurely arrest him, so they make a beeline out of the territory. And then he tells them, we're going back. And as much to the consternation of his disciples, here they are, back in Judea, back at the house, and they're going to throw a party for him there. So it's not even like he's being quiet about being back in Bethany. When it says in the passage, verses 1 and 2, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave him a dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. This is a familiar scene because in another gospel, there at Jesus is at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' place, and Lazarus is kicking it, probably telling jokes, running his six words a minute thing or whatever it is, a second. And then, and, and, and Martha is busy getting the, the, prepa- the preparations made. She is a servant. This is her thing. She loves to serve. And the first time he came, Mary was just sitting there enjoying the presence of Jesus, and Martha got her nose out of joint. You know, she's mad because she's, I'm busy working here, making the party great for Jesus, and you're just sitting there doing nothing, hanging out with him. And Jesus was quick to point out that hanging out with him is not doing nothing. But this is her Ben. This is, she, she's, a, she's a beer, and her sister Martha is a doer. And there are a lot of us that fit in those two categories. Some of us really have to labor intensely to say, okay, I'm going to settle my heart down and and just be. And then there are others who love just being, and it's very hard for them to make a to-do list. Uh, Martha's serving, using her gifts. Mary's serving, using her gifts. They're all just thrilled Jesus is there. And today's story in John 12, verses 1 through 11, ends with what we talked about last week, namely that there is a persecution that will come through your association with Jesus. You can hear last week's messages on our website. Uh, On your phone, you can download the podcast app and then just enter in Prism Church Sermons, and they will automatically download to your phone. It's never been easier to hear sermons here at Prism if you've missed them previously. Uh, the, The end of the passage, it says in verses 9 through 11, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, 
many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This would fall into the category of, thanks a lot for saving my life, Jesus, now I'm going to lose my life again. And I don't know that anybody else has ever fit into that particular category. They were dead, they got resurrected from the dead, and then had their life threatened again. If I were Lazarus, I would be like, hey, I was there last week, that doesn't scare me at all. You know, I have been there and done that. In this case, you see that his association with Jesus was all that it took to be a threat to some people. Just being named a follower of Jesus, somebody who would validate his divinity and his role in the world, we got to get rid of this guy. And so it would be really silly to set as an expectation that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that no one's ever going to be upset with you or no one's ever going to be offended by what you believe. Religious people who are connected with cultural powers always distrust people speaking publicly about Jesus and the power of the gospel. All around the world, you've got religious institutions, semi-connected, sometimes fully connected to governments. And almost always, those religious institutions are threatened by the free expression of the gospel because it threatens their power. This was certainly going on in Jesus' time. And rarely are people self-aware enough to know why they are doing something. They don't know why they're reacting so strongly to Jesus. They just know he irritates them. This is true for us, too. Most people don't spend a ton of time thinking about why they are angry. They're just angry. Why they feel irritated. I'm just irritated. I've discovered that my spouse has helped me over the last couple of decades do a better job of doing that investigation where I go, gosh, I'm just not feeling, I'm feeling irritable. I'm feeling sad. And she'll just ask me the question, when did you start feeling this way? Why did you start feeling this way? You may ask, well, why do you bother with all that? Well, I think that part of the Christian experience is that we're to investigate why we feel certain things, particularly if those things are wrong. Why we would say things that would be inappropriate or just mean. Why would we be so critical? In today's passage, we see an example of one person's actions, namely Mary, producing in others something that would demonstrate what was really in their heart. So we introduce the nominee for the best supporting actress in our drama, Mary And we'll start by saying today that Mary's reverence was demonstrated by her actions. When Mary did this great thing of pouring out this perfume on Jesus' feet and washing it with her hair and drying it with her hair, this is her way of saying, I love you. In verses 2 and 3, it says they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The gospel writer, John, giving a detail that would indicate he was there, you could smell this house full of perfume. John recollecting what was going on. Mary attending to Jesus in such a meaningful way. She's pouring out all of this ointment to say, Jesus, I love you. 
It's interesting because it would have been against Jewish custom for a woman to appear in the presence of men with her hair untied. But in Mary's case, she doesn't care about convention. She wants to express her love. Her love was stronger than a societal convention. She loved Jesus. It would have been unusual for a friend or even a disciple of Jesus to be one that would have to clean his feet. Think of that now. How frequently do you touch other people's feet? How frequently does anybody touch yours? So you can imagine how Jesus would have felt loved and cared for. And she humbly had no trouble seeing herself as his servant, washing his feet, not begrudgingly, but passionately. See, in the absence of a genuine encounter with Jesus, uh, without a real relationship with him, where you are intimately experiencing him as we confessed corporately today regarding the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of a believer. A believer is somebody who interacts with the Holy Spirit in their life. This interaction with Jesus, this this discovery and rediscovery of the kindness of God and the love of God, without this in your life, without knowing that somebody loves you unconditionally and that someone is Jesus revealed in the person that is in Scripture, the Christ who walked, the incarnate Son of God, without knowing that, really knowing it here, you'll never love Jesus. Religious people do good works to get out of hell or to avoid hell. Non-religious people do good works to make themselves feel better. People who are Christians, who genuinely know Jesus, do things because they're devoted to Jesus. You may ask, what's the big deal if the works get done? And I'll say, that's true. I mean, good works are preferable to the alternative, certainly for society. However, that doesn't mean a person is revering or worshiping or knowing Jesus. It isn't just doing good works. It's doing good works because in the case of Mary, you've experienced the Savior who not only rescued your brother from death, but is kinder than you ever imagined, who knows you intimately and loves you dearly, who interacts with you and gives your heart joy. And this is the gospel. God wants us to love him. The religious figures of his day had a moral compliance. They didn't know and walk with Jesus. He's after relationship with us. That's why he's taken judgment of his children off the table. It's so we can act lovingly toward him. You can't love God if you're doing something with an ulterior motive like getting your salvation or keeping your salvation or getting your blessing. You you do things because you want to love him. Mary wasn't going, okay, I'm doing this thing with the pure nard and uh, I'm going to dump this all over your feet and then I expect something in return. I mean, this is her just showering him with adoration. We love, it says in John, 1 John chapter 4, because he first loved us. The scriptures say, if you don't love him and others, the love of Christ isn't in you. Listen to what John says here 
in his epistle, 1 John 4, 18 through 20. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We love because he first loved us, it says. If you don't love others, it's likely you haven't truly experienced his love or it's been some time since you've encountered his love in a meaningful way that would produce this type of adoration. If you serve to your own ends, that may be good for society, but you don't get to put that in your moral ledger as evidence of something God owes you later in life as if you could do it that way, as if we could do enough good things to make God forget about the stink of our bad things. That's like spraying air freshener on a dairy farm. You know, there's just really no way to hide that. The person who does good works unmotivated by the grace of God experienced in Christ and a real connection with Jesus is going to be either prone to begrudging self-service or an off-putting self-righteous pride. Uh, Neither of these would qualify for loving God. Loving God is doing something for him because you're just so overwhelmed with his love for you that you do it. Not because you think he owes you anything when it's all done. We can see the impure motives for seeing Jesus, serving Jesus in our second character's reaction to Mary's action. Mary's action shows her heart. But our nominee for best supporting actor in a drama is Judas. And man, is he good. Mary's action reveals his motives. Verses 4 through 6 say, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas And the money. He didn't care about the poor. He didn't love Jesus. Whatever it was for Judas when he started out, being part of Jesus' entourage was now a game he was running to make money. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we all are probably thinking, who thought it was a good idea to put Judas on the money bag? But I have to tell you, I worked for a Christian radio organization once, and the nicest person on our staff was the comptroller, and the, he was well. He was a, had a multiplicity of roles, but he was in charge of the finances too, and and he was arrested for embezzlement. If you lined everybody in the place up and said, "Okay, who's the person in this room that's going to steal money?" I would have probably pointed at myself or somebody else. I, I darn sure wouldn't have pointed at him because he was amazing. So you can't always know. You rarely know what's in people's hearts. However, it should be noted that there is seemingly always an intersection, a connection between money and betrayal. Greed is a disease that none of us is immune to, but few of us have ever 
had such exposure to monetarily that we would let it take over our lives. M- most of the people I know uh, work for a living and, and are fairly close to hand-to-mouth in terms of their life's provision. Um, if any of us um, uh, had one of those opportunities where we had the money to buy anything we wanted anytime we wanted, we'd, we'd discover what history and not and scripture has taught us that very quickly there's nothing that we could ever do that would be enough. We'd find out that there's, there's never enough yachts to water ski behind. There's, there's never enough uh, vacation homes to have. But greed, when it gets a hold of your heart, says, I need more, I need more. And, and this was what was going on in Judas's life. He had been helping himself to the money bag. He'd gone from being just this poor scrub following around Jesus and realizing I could buy some things and do some things. And she just gave away 300 days worth of wages. Are you out of your mind? Using Jesus to your own ends is easy to point out in others, particularly for preachers. We can look and say, you know, these people don't love Jesus. But... That's because we watch televangelists try to raise money for jets, ostensibly to reach as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, and as comfortably as possible. Let's make sure we're clear on that. But other preachers, the ones of us that are not in the prosperity gospel camp, we are equally as prone to seeing in ministry with and for Jesus an opportunity to satisfy our earthly cravings for other things like human approval and significance. I know that from my own heart. I know that from talking to ministers all around the country. This type of using of Jesus to our own ends is much more insidious and dishonest on its face, which makes it doubly evil. Because we're not only doing ministry so others will like us and others will think we're successful compared to others, but we've deluded ourselves into thinking it's for the kingdom of God. Oh, I'm not alone in this. Through my 20 years of being in church life, I've known a lot of people who wanted to serve in church and do various things in church. Most of the time, it's because people genuinely love Jesus. But every now and again, because my own detector is pretty high, because of my own crud, I can see that somebody wants to do something because they find great meaning and they are deriving great identity from serving in that way. Perhaps you've experienced or had the sense of, gosh, this person's motives for doing this are really kind of twisted. What is it about this person that makes me uncomfortable? See, all of us are in the boat of having to research our own souls and say, why are we doing this? And one of the great research tools at our disposal is a good memory or a tape recorder. What's coming out of our mouths? What are we saying that indicates what's really going on in our hearts? As I mentioned before, so few of us actually do real deep surgery on our souls to say, why is this person making me so mad? Why does this person make me feel so angry? What is it about this person that rubs me the wrong way? We, we do so little of that because we think, well, I don't want to know. I just know I want to feel better. Jesus has called you and I to an, ex- an exploration of the things that come out of our mouth. In Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, he says this, 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of your heart, of the heart, his mouth speaks. I've found this to be true. And as somebody who does more six words per second than the average person, uh, I can tell you that oftentimes what comes out of my mouth is a direct indicator of what's really, really wrong with my heart. What is coming out of your mouth? And upon reflection, would it point to something in your heart that is disordered and displeasing to God? The gospel frees us to take this selfish motive, this angry thought, this poorly expressed criticism, and talk to him and ask him, what's really bothering me? It's not enough in your marriage to just say, you made me mad. If you want resolution and reconciliation, you've got to get beneath the surface and go, the reason that made me feel this way is because in my heart, I feel badly about this. Or because the way you expressed it made me feel a certain way. You're never going to be able to fix something unless you can accurately diagnose what's broken with it. The gospel frees us to bring this all to God. It is normative for us to discover these things. Our sinful nature is like the hot magma that comes busting out of the ground over in Hawaii from time to time. It's always down there, but just sometimes it comes to the surface. What we're supposed to do with that is bring it to Jesus. Say, I'm not sure why I'm feeling this way. I'm not sure why I said that. Help me discover what it is that's truly troubling me. Jesus says, confess our sins. Ask him to bring healing to those places where we're looking to something other than his approval and love for our life's peace or satisfaction. In Judas's case, it was his need for possessions or financial security. It eventually drove him to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's better that you and I recognize what's cooking inside of us while it's going on and then ask God's forgiveness for our words or actions and reflect on where we need Jesus to heal us. And this brings us to the third character in our drama, Jesus. He's the center character. He is the star. He is the nominee for lead actor in this drama. It's all about Jesus. Everybody else is just a bit player in his show. The third thing I want to show you is that Mary's actions, they reinforce Jesus' mission. Theologically speaking, this passage is all about the reaffirmation of Jesus' central purpose in life, which was to die. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. She preparing him for burial, having the leftovers for his day of burial. Clearly, Jesus is not advocating for the ignoring of the needs of the poor. He's simply saying that intimacy with him is more important. The notion that that could have been sold and given to the poor was a smokestring argument made by Judas for his own personal gain. What Jesus is advocating here 
is the primacy of relational intimacy as the propellant for worship. What Jesus is saying is that loving him incorporates both knowing him and serving him. It incorporates worshiping and adoring him on a personal level through the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit and caring for him by caring for the poor. Both are part of being his child. Mary's adoration of Jesus, the lavishing of gifts on him, not only pleases him but shows us once again, reinforces this perspective that he's dying for us. There are people in the contemporary theological world that would like to, for various reasons, uh, recreate the meaning of the gospel and say things like, Jesus didn't have to die. Now, I want you to know that that would contradict so much of what Jesus himself said. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 21, Jesus asks them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to his disciples, who do you say? I am. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus knew exactly what he had to do. It wasn't optional unless you and I were going to go on for the rest of eternity not having our sins paid for. Jesus had come to die in our place. This is what we celebrate at the communion table each week for all of the tangential benefits of it, community, ritual, tradition, and the like. We're gathered around a table to remember that Jesus had to die for our sins, to pay for them. Jesus is advocating for the lavishing of oil and love on him, preparing him for burial, is only reaffirming what he said all along. It was God's plan that the holy, perfect, only begotten son made flesh for us. Jesus Christ would offer himself for us as a substitute and completely satisfy God's just anger towards sin and any need he'd have to punish it. Jesus took the penalty for what his children deserved. He knew that's what he was doing. And Mary's actions give Jesus an opportunity, as he did with his disciples, to boldly state again that it's his mission to die. Mary's actions show what it means for us to love Jesus. Mary's actions show when somebody's heart is in the wrong place, that their motive for loving or doing good things is wrong. And then Mary's actions reinforce what Jesus has come to do. And that's to liberate you and me from the fear of judgment. May God bless the reading and teaching of his word. Let's pray.